Welcome to Rebels with a Purpose, powered by the voices of Catapult X, who are mobilizing capital, technology, people, and heart to solve the world's biggest challenges. In this podcast, we pose five questions to leaders who are changing the world and its systems. I'm your host, Kate Byrne, CEO of Catapult X. Data. Reimagine the financial system. That's what Rebel with a Purpose, Amit Pradhan, co-founder of Rainfall.one, is doing. What would happen if we gave people control of their data and introduced a way that people everywhere could earn income from it? Could we actually transform the global economy? Amit says yes. Find out why. Amit Pradhan, hello, hello. So excited to talk with you. Oh, it's lovely to be here, Kate. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you making the time. And oh my gosh, this could not be happening in such a more perfectly timed opportunity to talk about everything that is of your world. But before we go deeply into that, I always like to kind of get a sense of how people got to where they are and what their path to their journey is, especially you, because you have always been several steps out ahead of so many people. Um, I also kind of want to get a sense of what's that like? Well, that's that's kind. I think being a few steps ahead sometimes is good and sometimes, you know, can have its um, at least temporary downsides. My background has been deep tech um, ever since I can remember. Born in India, uh, educated in Australia, did a startup in the world of deep tech through an acquisition came into the into the US, got caught up into the San Francisco ecosystem of entrepreneurship um, and learned some incredible lessons very early on in life. And one of those lessons was, you know, success can come early, um, success can come late, success sometimes can be fleeting, but it makes you realize that once you have, you know, access to some form of influence, some form of of technology, certainly, you know, influence to capital or influence with capital, you start to ask questions of what you what you're meant to do with it. And for me, that coming early on in life was very fortunate because I went past some of the the trapsings of what comes with a little bit of success and transitioned into the idea of purpose. And for me, the part that was unique was the idea that I had access and expertise around what we now call frontier technology or exponential technology and thinking about what the purpose of that access was, what the purpose of the technology was and how we can apply it to solving genuinely real challenges because the truth is these real challenges, while they may sometimes feel like they don't have the propensity of immediate return, they're actually the ones that not only solve the biggest problems that planet, humanity, people, cities face, but they represent the larger returns on capital as long as you're willing to have that vision and that patience. And what that did was it constantly allowed me to look at 10-year horizons and glasses that were in the future rather than just, hey, what's trending right now? And, and I think to your point, Sometimes that means you're out ahead each time. But if you can be out ahead in a way that connects with what the purpose is, what the big challenges are, then you can stitch that back to their execution plan to the now 
and start being effective, but also being purposeful about what we're trying to achieve in the longer term. And I think what I've heard from various conversations with you and just witnessing and watching all that you've done, it is also that that purpose, that anchoring, and now I know this is my dharma, this is why I'm here. And so others may think, oh, you're such a fool, how could you for not make a gazillion dollars and become a unicorn out the gate? That's that's not really what it is in the long run. And it's not about the short-term decisions, right, that can have horrible long-term implications, which is what we're living with right now, right? Absolutely. And I think that in many ways, you know, I've grown through the Silicon Valley ecosystem, so I'm grateful on one hand. On the other hand, I'm more than happy to recognize and admit that, you know, all of the success that Silicon Valley was born out of and created has also gone and become its handcuffs. And in many ways, there is this propensity to invest in the next unicorn if it creates kind of this AI-powered filter system for Snapchat or Instagram that you know is going to be bought by, you know, Facebook or what have you. And while that represents quick return both for the founder and for the venture capitalist that's putting money in, um, the reality is that, you know, it's just an incredible waste of amazing talent and everything that that ecosystem can create. And to me, a, a big long-term blind spot for not only having the responsibility to solve those big challenges, right? But also um, to look at where the next big propensity for return is going to come from. Exactly, which is a whole different line of sight for, for futures really in so many ways. So to that end, you know, if you look back over the last five years, um, what have been some of the biggest surprises in, especially with your work? I don't know. Maybe you see them and it's sort of a land of only one hand clapping. I see the surprises and others don't. But I'd be really curious to sort of hear what your thoughts are on that. I think, and this is not new to a lot of people who are involved in the world of, you know, impact and thinking about, you know, how do we solve for the bigger challenges? Um, the last five years have been very surprising, both in terms of, just how quickly everything has snowballed in terms of the urgency and the need to find solutions. And at the same time, just seeing the blind spots, like you look at frontier technologies, blockchain is a great example, tokenization is a great example, AI, uh, you know, cryptocurrencies. The irony of cryptocurrencies is they were not born out of this idea that, you know, someone can buy into Bitcoin at a dollar and then, you know, sell at 60,000 and suddenly they're, you know, worth a billion, right? The whole idea of decentralization and cryptocurrencies that were built on top of that was driven by the idea that we can solve for the bigger challenges of inequality and deep hyper-centralization. You know, you go back to, you know, the origins of where some of the oldest developers cryptographers have come from. They've come from parts of the Eastern Bloc of Europe. They've come from Venezuela. They've come from Argentina. And what's in common with these places? You know, either authoritarian regimes, hyperinflation or collapsing currencies have taken away the freedoms and the futures of not just the average person, but highly technically talented young people. And they have wanted to find a way to get back and get some control and semblance back, 
right? And so these are the underlying tenets of why the space of decentralization came in. And so that part inspires me, gets me very excited. I look yeah. at the community that's building around that and I go, wow, in five years, look at the acceleration that we've seen in solutions around this. And conversely, in that same period of time, look at where the narrative is. The narrative is around who made a billion in Bitcoin. The narrative is around, you know, what's the latest altcoin that I can put money into and, and make money on. And at the same time, you look at traditional Silicon Valley venture funds being able to raise larger amounts of assets under management, but still deploy them in that old world. And this is the part where I feel like there's a cognitive dissonance to your question of what have you seen in this five-year period? What surprised me most is the cognitive dissonance of how much money this space has allowed venture funds to raise. And yet they've taken that, that money and for the most part, look to deploy it in the same models that made them successful for the past 40 years. I come from a media background. Every time I look at this, it's the exact same thing when media went from publishing to digital publishing to apps it was the same old model they just shoved every, the same amount of content and the pipes got tinier and tinier and also the same definition of success the, the same definition of profit of value it's all dated it's all crumbling and it's essentially why i think really we haven't made near the amount of impact that obviously that we need to. And that's why now I think across every single um, industry, there's such a, such a state of crisis and we got to get moving on it. Talk a little bit about rainfall because I really love the idea, one of the democratization, but also providing, I love that line, one sovereignty over their data. I mean, what a concept. We do it as a person walking and talking. I mean, it can be so exponential to folks. If I may, I'll, I'd, I'd love to even take just a little bit of a step back and, and, you know, even tie this into your question around sovereignty. If you look at the last five years, <laughs> there have been a, a bunch of really interesting movements and inflection points that have made mainstream conversation, right? So you look at aspects of Black Lives Matter, the climate movement led by a 16-year-old as the face of this now, you know, so it's become a generational movement. Mm -hmm. You've seen, you know, even things specific to, you know, investing, Wall Street bets, right? And that whole, you know, movement that happened around GameStop and a few other other stocks. And, and these three were great examples of protest movements. Whether it was equality, whether it was racial equality, whether it was gender equality, whether it was, you know, the ability for the average person to be able to play in this investment game as well. And certainly when it came to climate, the next generation's demanding that they not just have a role to play, but that we leave them with a planet that that they can, you know, live Do with. something with, live and, on, breathe. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then you have... You know, these three other phenomena that have been such commonplace conversations. You have Bitcoin, you have decentralized finance or DeFi, and then we've had this conversation around NFTs, right? Non-fungible tokens and art and, you know, all of those things. And, and what's really interesting if you, if you study those is that they're, to me, separate vectors of the same 
revolution. I call it the commons revolution or the people's revolution. And that's what I tie to the idea of sovereignty. What is a people's revolution? It's a revolution around people's own sovereignty, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you start thinking about sovereignty, you know, it starts to apply to a lot of things. And, you know, we have created a modern society that has valued human life based upon physical land that we inhabit and what we might find below and then mine to the detriment of our own existence on this planet or what we build on top. And I call it the oil and toil economy because, hmm. you know, it's, it's just what, what we can, you know, extract as much as possible. And then, you know, how much work we can do, you know, start with an agrarian economy and then we went to an industrial economy and then we went into automation and capitalism built on top of that. And the problem with that, Kate, as you know so well, is that 95 or more percent of the land is owned by just 5% of the world's population. And so the economics don't spread to those who truly toil. And all of those resources that we're fighting for, that, that we have wars for, if not actual weaponized wars, you know, economic wars, cultural wars, are all scarce, limited resources, right? And so the idea behind sovereignty and the premise of rainfall is how do we create a postmodern society that values human life not on physical land, but now on digital, virtual land that we all inhabit, not just people like you and I who live in relatively first world countries and first world cities and have first world yeah. lives, but it could be the person who doesn't have the privilege of shelter in, in the streets of Mumbai but has an, a cheap Android phone and a rickety bicycle and, and is delivering lunch boxes from people's homes to their offices. It could be Rashida, the refugee who sits in one of the, you know, one of the camps outside of Syria, whose heart rate, pulse rate, the humidity in the air, number of steps she takes, density of people around her are better indicators of where future viruses and bacteria are going to develop. And the data that she generates, which, by the way, is the only resource from this new way to value human life, right? And the best part of this new resource is that it is infinite. Every year, we're creating more data as a global community. 600 trillion gigabytes of data was generated by the entire world just in 2020. That number will go on increasing as the number of devices that generate data go on increasing. It's not just your phones. It's like these little smart rings. It's your smart watches. It's IoT devices in your home on the street. And our ability to capture that value in the sovereignty of the people who are generating it, not for Facebook, not for Google, you know, not for the what I call the GAFA bats, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, and Tesla. But how do we capture it? for the individual, for Rashida, for that guy without shelter in Mumbai who we can now start creating a minimum income for. And my inspiration to do this came from the idea that all of the work behind universal basic income comes from the right sentiment, the idea that we need to create a fundamental platform of economic stability for every human around the world. But the challenges of paying for it from taxes and having it run by centralized governments universally, just so difficult, in fact, never going to happen. And so to me, the idea of not universal basic income, but what I call the universal 
earned income, which is this idea that we all have value, not just those who have successful companies or businesses or CEOs or great jobs, but that person delivering those lunchboxes, but Rashida living that life in a camp in one of these refugee organizations, how do we create value for them? So the Rainfall model is a model where the Rainfall app allows people to make those decisions for themselves. That's the beginning of sovereignty. Do I want to share my data? Yes or no, right? That That's the, the principle of sovereignty. If I do, under what conditions am I willing to share my data? And if I do, I should be the one who gets the value created from that data. And so what Rainfall does is based on this consent, it takes the knowledge from that data, uses AI to create intelligence, offers that intelligence its real time, how people are moving, where trends are, which cafe should consider a promotion in the next 10 minutes because 40 people are likely to walk by. But how do you do that? A, without compromising the privacy of those individuals. The cafe shouldn't know that it's Kate and Amit or Rashida. And at the same time, the value that comes from that, how do we create a friction-free model of income and distribute it back to the sources of that data, not to rainfall, right? So the idea is not to take GAFA bat and create GAFA brat and just perpetuate that cycle Welcome right. to Silicon Valley, but yeah. but actually create a model where the majority of the income goes back to the data creators with the big grand vision. Mission 2030 for Rainfall is to create a minimum of $6 of daily income for the next billion humans. Because if we can do that for the people who live in South Asia or Sub-Saharan Africa or Central America, and as COVID has shown, even on the streets of San Francisco, or New York, yeah. right, which we would have yeah. never imagined, then we can keep people out of basic poverty, but also create a little margin so that when calamities hit, and we now live in a world where that's going to be more and more and more often, that people don't fall into the crevice. I love that whole notion. I love that whole model. Have we become lazy? those in the financial systems? I'm going to say in every system. Are we lacking in curiosity? Because all you have to do is take a look and you realize just how broken everything is. And so hearing you share this, it's such a sensical, uh, albeit it'll take time, but still it makes sense to start making the shift now because then the, the overarching change is in fact exponential. And that's what everybody's saying. You can't just have change overnight. And if you do, it, we all know it certainly won't last. Hello. That's what we're living. So how can we encourage people to be more curious as opposed to more fearful? It's such a great way to frame it, right? Because, you know, of course we do become lazy, but I would, I would even say, you know, perhaps lazy has a negative connotation, but I think we get comfortable, right? And this is the challenge most of the time that we operate in a series of cyclical comfort zones. And then after a period of being in a comfort zone for too long, we end up with challenges that we feel have, you know, we've reached that boiling point. And then we, we quickly shift into trying to fix that. And when we don't succeed, we struggle. When we succeed, guess what happens? We fall into the next comfort zone. And I would say it's easy to say capitalism 
as as a whole, right? But even let's go back to this idea of how we deploy capital, because sticking with the theme of startups and Silicon Valley and you know new ecosystems being built around the world, the challenge is not that super talented founders are, are finding incredible new technologies like AI and the blockchain and saying, oh, so cool, I can use this to build something. It's that there is a full chain of that ecosystem, starting with where the capital starts from. So like limited partners that fund venture funds that have the structures that they have and therefore deploy in the way that they do. You know, every time I talk to LPs, the people who deploy capital into the venture capital funds that then deploy capital into startups. And if you ask them how they like to deploy capital, their favorite answer is fund two or fund three of people that they've already invested in. Lazy, perhaps, definitely more comfortable. And so they stick with existing models. And I think <laughs> that my take always is, you know, whenever I talk to the old world of capital, I always say, hey, you know what made you great? It wasn't that you took political positions. It wasn't that you loved Greta or hated Greta or whatever it might be, or that you don't like that she blames your generation. Don't worry about that. What made you and Silicon Valley great was not the great weather or the reverence to Steve Jobs or the other great creators. It was that you saw the biggest blue ocean opportunities in the challenges that the world faced and you went there when no one else was willing to. And those people who are willing to do that are not just do-gooders or people who you know want to make this world a better place. They're going to see the largest returns in wealth. This is one of the core tenets, right, at Catapult X is this could be a force for good. And money is a force for good when it's deployed properly, equitably, and such. And so if we could just get everyone around that notion of, I guess, maybe even shifting their definition of what's enough, that'll be the sequel. That's a whole <laughs> other conversation that we can go to. But I want to ask you, what do you think is something that exists today, but won't in the next five years that'll like, poof, go away? That's such a great question. I mean, I think that in many ways, one of the big changes that is coming from the world of cryptocurrencies and blockchain and decentralization is unique uh, switches in business models of economics for a lot of different businesses. And one of them in my mind is going to be the, the world of capital and how capital is raised and deployed. And one of the things that will go away in the world of capital is the legacy models of how you raise the fees that you charge and therefore how you deploy. So that's going to be one aspect of where the pressures from a democratization of access to capital, where people who don't have the minimum thresholds that you currently need to invest in an investment firm would be able to invest. The same thing will apply to the world of art, right? The ability that people can step in and deploy $5 or $20 or $50. And the big change to me is going to be the purpose of that capital rather than just the return of that capital. And traditional venture funds that don't understand that, while the end result might not be as early as five years, the foundations for that are going to all happen in the next five years.
right? And so one of the things I always say whenever I'm trying to, going back to your original point of being, you know, maybe a few steps ahead, is to not do that in a way that challenges people in their question of, can this happen in five years, right? So if you say, for example, let's talk about autonomous vehicles, and you right. say, oh, we can debate this till the cows come home of whether it will be in one year, two years, five years, 10 years. But if I said to you, do we debate even that in the next 50 years, no one will be driving in a combustion engine car by themselves? Very few people would argue that. So if we agree on the eventual vision and the eventual premise, to me, a lot of that comes around the idea of sovereignty, then we're just getting into the weeds about the timeline. Right. So let's focus on the vision and we can disagree on the timeline. You've got me thinking, how can we get people more comfortable with technology? There's so much fear. And I, I keep thinking about what you just said and, and also meeting people where they're at. Because I can imagine there's so many people who would so benefit from universal earned income and what Rainfall was suggesting with their data. But those are the same people that say, I don't want people knowing my data. So how do we fix that? How do we build that trust? Fantastic point, because, you know, whenever it comes to trends, not just from a technology perspective, but, you know, any trend or anything that is front and center from a, a narrative perspective, most of the time, Kate, as you know, well, 95% of the oxygen in the room is occupied by things that matter only 5%, right? Exactly. We've seen this with elections. We've seen this with AI. When we think about AI, the conversations are around, you know, either Hollywood's version of AI or the dystopian narrative around, you know, how, you know, robots will come and take over our lives, right? Yep. And yet, 95% exactly. of the work in AI, and, you know, I've been investing in AI for a long time, 95% of the work is in, you know, how AI can help with reading radiology reports, how AI can help us with collapsing the clinical trial times for new drug yep. discovery and how do we make travel safer and, you know, how do we make investing more democratized and easy and fair and transparent. And that is where capital, that's where people are building and innovating. But it comes down to the messaging. And I think the big mistake we all make is that we get so caught up in the world that we live in that we design narrative for our bubbles, our, our little echo chambers, instead of defining narrative for the people that we're, we're designing product for. So as an example, what we do with Rainfall, we never talk cryptocurrency, right? Because that Rashida, the example, and that guy living in the streets of Mumbai, what do they care about cryptocurrency? Why does it even matter? That is right. just a benefit, right? So we have to talk about how their lives can change. How do we create a daily income? You know what they care about? They care about feeding their family of four, right? Exactly. And so you have to tie it to those things. We even design our, our interfaces in a way that they don't have to think about a wallet or cryptocurrencies. It's just simple. They have to click on two buttons, but you have to do a lot of education. So we are partnering with different organizations that are bringing millions of users into Rainfall, but part of those partnerships are education programs for them. Leave them with more than just why they need to use Rainfall. 
leave them with understanding data. What does it mean? What are the implications? What does privacy mean? Because privacy, you know, it's one of these things. I've worked on privacy for a very long time now. And very quickly, like you think about it, when my dad takes a photo on his phone, you know what he thinks? Oh, this is a car that Amit likes. I should send him the photo. When I take a photo, I think, oh, I want to post this on some social media channel. Who should not see it? So I, I can turn off some filters, right? And when a Gen Z or a young millennial takes a photo, you know what she's thinking? The question she's asking is, what if someone doesn't see this? Exactly. Right? This is all privacy. So understanding the generational piece and then creating narrative and education around that is our responsibility. And that's that's something we absolutely have to do. And in doing so, even in that process, you're giving people greater sovereignty, period, just with the intellectual understanding of what's taking place. We're nearing time to close. So I want to ask one question or not even ask a question. What is it? What is a call to action that you would urge catapulters and beyond to do? The lesson for me was that we always wait to either be in a position of having capital to deploy or a life change that allows us to go and run projects. And the lesson I've learned is that we are all purveyors of unique skills. Some might have it in technology, some in capital, some in social aspects, some in finance. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter what stage of life we're in personally or professionally, there's value for us to add as soon as we shift what we want to add it to. And so to me, it's this idea of how do we transition from the pursuit of everything that is permanence, because society has taught us that from the time we were infants, to the pursuit of purpose. Because purpose allows us to have clear vision of what we want to do, to what outcome, and what are the things that we can contribute to. Some catapulters will create incredible solutions to the world's biggest problems. Some will find ways to help finance them. Others will help influence that into ecosystems that need the most help and where the users can come in. And people like you can create this incredible framework of knowledge and education and narrative to the question that you had asked so people understand the why of what they're going to be using as opposed to the the, the silicon valley tech world model of basically it's free and so that's great without you know realizing that wait a minute it was free because you are the product and someone else is making money of the fact that you're the product and again going back to that word what you lose there is your sovereignty and with that your agency so true and the way i love how you just stated that is it's such a good reminder that as we have long know change is the only constant right so permanence is a fleeting thing so embrace that suffering is optional once you embrace that you, you have a tendency to suffer less because you know this too shall pass and this is all something that we'll learn and um and I just think too that it's it's all dynamic and it's gonna change and it's gonna be out of our hands. So the more that we can, you know, play a role in it, the better. Well, oh my gosh, on it, Pradhan. 
Thank you so, so much. So enjoyed this conversation. Look forward to so many more. I can't wait to see the many people who benefit from all the, the work and the effort that you're putting into to rainfall and beyond. Thank you for being such a pioneer and being out on the forefront because that can be lonely, but I appreciate everything that you're doing. Okay. Thank you very much. You know, and, and Buckminster Fuller laid this out for us so well with his quote, we are called to be the architects of the future, not its victims. And I'm very grateful for the work that all of you are doing in making sure that you create more architects and not victims. So deeply appreciate it and thank you for the time. This is Kate Byrne with Catapult X. Thanks for downloading our podcast, Rebels with a Purpose, available wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our next conversation with Frederick Winter, CEO of Catapult's Accelerator Group, where we'll talk about technology's role in building solutions for energy, ocean, and regenerative agriculture. If you like what you hear in this series, join us in person at our upcoming Future Fest event. Yep, we're back in Oslo, Norway, May 18th through the 21st, 2022.